If you live in the United States, then you have most likely encountered at least a few people with truly bizarre names. After all, in the United States, parents can name their children and adults can legally change their own names too, almost anything they'd like, provided that the name is spelled using the English alphabet, and there's a number of exceptions to even that modest restriction. To an American, then, it might be surprising to learn that many countries have tight restrictions on legally authorized names. Denmark is the most salient example of one of these countries, because Danish parents must choose their baby's name in accordance with a list of fewer than 10,000 government-approved baby names. And, of course, the chosen name must match the sex of the baby. Good morrow, everybody, and welcome to Stories of Symmetry. My name is Ben Laboot, and on this fortnightly podcast, we strive to reveal beauty and purpose through another look at faith, the sacred, and the stories that unite us all. This is the first of two consecutive episodes centered about the question, what's in a name? For the ancient Israelites, there was no list of approved names sanctioned by the authoritarians of that era. Notwithstanding, neither did they treat names with the casual and insouciant attitude with which names are regarded nowadays. For the Israelites, names were more than mere monikers. In many instances, names were prophecies spoken over children, or descriptions of one's relationship with God. Two weeks ago, I said that Jesus is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Yeshua, a form of the name Joshua, Yehoshua, which means the Lord saves, or the Lord is salvation. In angelology, there is an archangel associated with each of the four cardinal directions. The guardian of the south is Michael, whose name means who is like God. Gabriel of the West, whose name means Mighty One of God. Raphael of the East, whose name means God Heals. And finally, Uriel of the North, whose name means Light of God. And, if we go back to the earliest characters in the Bible, Adam and Eve, Adam, pronounced Adam in Hebrew, means mankind and the character Adam likely received that name because Adamah is dirt or soil. And the story goes that God reached into the soil and formed a human being. Eve, pronounced Chava in Hebrew, means life, but with a sense of motion through, because Adam looked at her and saw that life came through her. Originally, The father of the faith was named Abram, meaning exalted father. But God changed his name to Abraham, an appellation of unclear meaning, but probably something along the lines of father who is the shield of many. His wife was originally named Sarai, meaning my princess. But God changed her name also 
she became Sarah, meaning princess of many. Now Abraham had two sons. His first was with his wife's servant, a woman named Hagar. The meaning of her name isn't clear, but it likely means to flee or to be dragged away. God told Hagar to name the child Ishmael because God had listened to her affliction. Ishmael is derived from two Hebrew words, Shema and El. El means God, and if you listen to season 1 episode 10, then you might remember that Shema means to listen, but with a sense of understanding and response. Remember that there's action in Shema. So the name Ishmael doesn't only mean God listens, it means God listens and does something about it. Abraham's second son was through his wife Sarah. When she was 90 years old, God told Abraham that she would give birth to a son. Abraham's response was to fall on his face in laughter and impiously declare, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety, bear a child? So God rebuked Abraham's persiflage and told him to call the child Isaac, which, from the verb tzachak, means laughter. Isaac and his wife Rebekah, whose name means securely tied, had twin boys. Esau whose proper name refers to one who does or makes happen, but whose nicknames, Edom and Seir, both refer to his red and hairy appearance. And Jacob, who was born holding on to his brother Esau's heel. Jacob, pronounced Jacob in Hebrew, means to take, to supplant, or to deceive. His name proved prophetic, because Jacob later supplanted Esau's position in the family by convincing Esau, the firstborn, to sell his birthright for a warm meal. Thus, the nation of Israel descends from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, rather than Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. Many years after the taking of the birthright, Jacob journeyed out to meet his estranged brother Esau. One night along the way, Jacob stopped along the river Yabak, meaning emptying or pouring out. There, with no one else around, he encountered the divine. The word used is sarah. It is usually translated as wrestle or struggle, as in Jacob wrestled with God. But the truth is that sarah is a virtual hapax legomenon, because in all of the Bible, Sarah appears only in this story, found in Genesis 32, and in a reiteration of the story, found in Hosea 12. Therefore, no one is certain what Sarah means. It certainly could mean to wrestle, but it might mean something altogether different. The story goes like this. Now Jacob was left alone, a man Sarah with him until the coming up of dawn. When he saw that he could not prevail against Jacob, he touched the socket of Jacob's thigh, which had been pulled out of joint as they had Sarah. Then he said, 
Let me go, for the dawn has come up. But Jacob said, I will not let you go until you bless me. So he replied, What is your name? And Jacob answered, Jacob. But he responded, Not as taker by the heel, supplanter, shall your name henceforth be uttered, but rather Yisrael, for you have Sarah with God and men, and have prevailed. The rest of the story, which is one of my favorites in the Bible, will have to wait for another time. For now, we are only considering the name, Israel. If we break it down, we already learned El, the Hebrew word for God. But what is Yisra? Traditionally, Yisra is assumed to come from that unknown verb, Sarah. And if we assert that Sarah means wrestle, struggle, fight, contend, or any similar idea, then Israel would mean God-fighter, or, as it is more commonly rendered, the one who struggles with God. Many scholars, however, are skeptical of this etymology and wonder if Yisra is derived from another, better understood Hebrew word, of which there are many possibilities. My favorite theory derives Yisra from the word sarar, which refers to turgor, the quality of resiliency or rigidity as caused through the absorption of a fluid. Turgor is what makes well-hydrated plants stand upright, whereas desiccated ones become droopy. And turgor is what causes healthy skin to spring back to its original position when stretched. So perhaps, when Jacob encountered the divine that night, he was completely emptied of himself. After all, he was at the Yabak River, the one who empties. And when Jacob was finally drained, God blessed him by filling him with the Holy Spirit, God's own breath and living water. And, filled with the Spirit, Yisrael, now rigid and resilient, was able to go forth, walk with God, and lead his people. Finally, let's consider my name, Benjamin. There are three Benjamins mentioned in the Bible, and the first became the patriarch of an entire tribe of Israel. Yet to understand the name, we need to understand his parents. Benjamin's father was Jacob, the one we have been discussing, whose name was changed to Israel. Now Jacob met and fell in love with a woman named Rachel, whose name, Rachel, means you, a female sheep. Jacob was so love-struck by Rachel that he agreed to work for her father as a laborer for seven years to earn her hand in marriage. It's ironic that Jacob means deceiver, and one can argue that what goes around comes around, because at the conclusion of those seven years of labor, Rachel's father tricked the besotted Jacob into marrying Rachel's older sister instead. The mechanism of this deceptive sleight of hand is unknown, though veils and alcohol were likely involved in that chicanery. Nevertheless, Jacob, still yearning for his beloved Rachel, 
labored under her father for yet another seven years. And finally, after fourteen long years, married his darling Rachel. Of Jacob's thirteen children, only two were born to him through Rachel, his youngest two. Joseph, the one whose bright coat and flippancy drove his brothers to sell him into slavery, but whose eventual rise to prominence allowed him to bring his entire family to Egypt. And then Jacob's youngest child, Benjamin. The birth of Benjamin must have been bittersweet for Jacob. The woman he loved bore him a son, yet she also died giving birth to him. Just when the child had been born, the midwife told Rachel, You have a son. And, as Rachel lay there dying, the Bible says that, as her soul was departing, she called his name Ben-Oni. If we dissect the name, Ben simply means son, or of the house of. For example, Judah Ben-Hur, Judah of the house of Hur. Or how Ben-Adam means son of man, son of Adam. For the name Ben-Oni, there are two theories about what Oni might mean. The first is that Oni comes from the Hebrew word awen, meaning sorrows. In that case, Ben-Oni means son of my sorrows. And perhaps Rachel had this in mind, given the circumstances of her impending death. However, the second theory posits that Oni comes from the Hebrew word own, meaning strength. Perhaps this is what Rachel had in mind, knowing that it took all the strength she had to bring the child into the world. Just maybe her dying request was this, Call my son Ben-Oni, because the strength that I once had now belongs to him. And yet, I wonder if those two theories aren't mutually exclusive. I wonder if Rachel had both meanings in mind when she named him Ben-Oni, the son of my strength and my sorrow. While oftentimes those sentiments are quite different, Rachel might nevertheless have understood that sometimes strength comes through sorrow and suffering, and that those two are simply different sides of the same coin. One is the process, the other is the result, but they go hand in hand. It's like the name Israel, because before God's spirit can course through your being and provide the turgor to stand up tall and straight and resilient, you must first be emptied out even if it takes all night wrestling with God, because when you struggle with the divine and suffer in the process, you somehow walk away with strength, and not just any old strength, but strong and courageous strength, like God commanded Joshua to have, strength to trust God instead of his own understanding. So perhaps Rachel was not merely sad when she said, Name him Ben-Oni. Maybe at some point in her life, she had struggled with God and walked away strengthened, and she wanted her son to be a testimony to that deep mystery of God. In that case, her dying breath was not lugubrious, but celebratory, as she praised God for all the places they had been together. The story doesn't end there, however. The Bible says that as her soul was departing, 
she called his name Ben-Oni, but his father called him Ben-Yamin. For what possible reason did Jacob ignore his beloved wife's dying request and name their child Benjamin instead? A name that means son of the right hand. One possible explanation is that the right hand is the predominant hand, the hand of respect. Indeed, it is at the Father's right hand that Jesus sits. Even more so, the right hand is the hand of blessing. When Jacob took Esau's blessing, he received it from their father's right hand. And when Benjamin's nephews, Ephraim and Manasseh, received their blessings from Jacob, Jacob crossed his hands so that he might bless the younger son with the right hand. And as he did so, he said, The younger brother shall be greater than the older. Even though the birth of Benjamin was bittersweet, that for Benjamin to enter the world, Rachel had to leave it, Jacob still counted that day as a blessing. It's not that he wasn't crestfallen or sad, because even many years later, at the aforementioned blessing of Ephraim and Manasseh, Jacob said, To my sorrow, Rachel died. So it's not that Jacob dismissed his wife's preferred appellation of Ben-Oni, son of my strengths and sorrows, Forsooth, Jacob knew well that those two go hand in hand with each other, and hand in hand when walking with God. And yet Jacob, or should I say Israel, the one who is strengthened by God's breath, at the birth of his son said, This is about more than even the mystery of strength and sorrow, about more than even my cherished Rachel. This day, this child, is a blessing from God the first and foremost of blessings, from God's own right hand. Therefore, call him the son of the right hand. Call him Benjamin. In 1953, Arthur Miller's play, The Crucible, premiered on Broadway. The script has become a classical piece of literature, one that most American students will have read before graduating high school. It is set at the end of the 17th century, during the witch trials in and around Salem, Massachusetts. There is an apropos scene in Act 4, and it stands out for its emotion and significance. John Proctor, one of the leading characters, has been arrested on charges of witchcraft, and is now arraigned to confess his crimes before Judge Danforth and the High Court. His options are death by hanging, or to confess to witchcraft, in which case he will be delivered over to God's mercy. Proctor chooses confession, yet he refuses to name others as complicit, and he refuses to sign the confession. Danforth says to Proctor, Come then, sign your testimony. Proctor replies, You have all witnessed my confession. It is enough. You will not sign it? You have witnessed it. What more is needed? Do you sport with me? You will sign your name, or it is no confession. 
Proctor signs his name. Yet as Danforth reaches for the paper, Proctor snatches it with wild terror and boundless anger swelling in him. Danforth extends his hand to receive the document. If you please, sir. No! Mr. Proctor, the village must have proof that- Damn the village! I confess to God, and God has seen my name on this paper. It is enough. God does not need my name nailed upon the church. God sees my name. God knows how black my sins are. It is enough. Mr. Proctor, I must have legal proof. Do you mean to deny this confession when you are free? I mean to deny nothing. Then explain to me, Mr. Proctor, why you will not let... Because it is my name. Because I cannot have another in my life. Because I lie and sign myself to lies. Because I am not worth the dust on the feet of them that hang. How can I live without a name? I have given you my soul. Leave me my name. In the end, Proctor chose the rope rather than to have his name signed to a false confession and nailed upon the church. There is something significant, particularly biblically speaking, about a name. Like how in John's revelation, Jesus told the church at Pergamum that whoever overcomes sin is victorious. He will give a white stone inscribed with a name known only to the one who receives it. I also think about the one and only parable in which Jesus named one of the characters. Found in Luke chapter 16, it is commonly referred to as the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. While I won't recount the story here, I will mention that the named character, Lazarus, is a poor beggar who receives help from all sides except from the one person who can actually fulfill his needs, the fabulously wealthy character known only as the rich man. With his basic necessities unmet, Lazarus, in his privation, suffers. Many preachers have asserted that Lazarus had nothing, except for one thing. He had a name. And if you have nothing else, God knows your name. Maybe Jesus had that very thought in mind as he broke habit and named one of his characters. The name he chose, Lazarus, or El-Azar in its original form, comes from the two words El, meaning God, and Azar, meaning help. Put together, then, the name El-Azar, Lazarus, means the one whom God helps. There's a chance that Jesus chose this name because Elazar received his help not from the rich man, but from God, as it was God who sent the dogs to lick that desperate mendicant's sores. For if the rich man refused to help Lazarus, then God would send the beast to his aid. And even though he suffered on earth, God relieved his suffering in the hereafter. When Ken Bailey discussed this parable in his book Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes, he asked the question, who is Elazar, the one whom God helps? And the author concluded the following. From Lazarus's response to suffering in this life, and his implied forgiveness of the rich man in the next life, 
It is clear that God was with him and helped him all the way. Only with divine help is such a response possible. He was indeed Eleazar, Lazarus. In life, the rich man refused God's help. He had money and managed his affairs alone. In hell, he begged to become the one whom God helps. But it was too late. Let's now return to the name Jesus, which means the Lord is salvation. In the Gospel of John, Jesus said, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. To ask or to do something in someone's name, you do not need to literally say the person's name. Doing something in someone's name means that you undertake whatever task it is, as that person would. Therefore, acting in the name of Jesus doesn't mean praying, in the name of Jesus I do such and such. Rather, it means asking yourself the well-known question, what would Jesus do? Or, you can rephrase it and inquire, would Jesus do such and such, and if so, how? This isn't to say that you can't invoke the name of Jesus. There's even a biblical precedent for doing exactly that. Like when, early in the book of Acts, Peter healed a crippled beggar by saying, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And the man was healed. However, though there is power in the name of Jesus, Listen to this other encounter recorded in the book of Acts. A Jewish high priest had seven sons. When the sons tried to exercise demons for profit, saying, In the name of Jesus, who Paul preaches, come out. The demons replied, I know Jesus, and I know Paul, but who are you? Then the demons attacked the sons and beat them. So when Jesus said, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. He must not have been speaking literally, because if that were the case, he'd be a liar. Because if it were meant literally, then the sons of the high priest would have had success exercising demons. For reasons like this, we must be cautious against reading the Bible too literally, and acting like an idiom can't be an idiom, or that analogies, metaphors, and other forms of expression don't exist. Nevertheless, it's okay to end a prayer with, we pray this in the name of Jesus, amen. The most important consideration is that when you do pray, don't limit yourself to only uttering the name Jesus, but ask, is this something Jesus would want, and am I asking it with the very heart and motives of Jesus? Will I do it in his name. The title of this episode is What's in a Name? So what is in a name? Importance? Power? Meaning? Perhaps all of these things, perhaps more. A name can tell a story, or it can be a prophecy, or it can be nothing at all. Maybe for now, Think about the parable of Lazarus and the rich man, and take comfort in knowing that, 
Even if you have nothing else, you have a name, and God knows it. Thank you for listening to Stories of Symmetry. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please share it with those you know. You can also subscribe, rate, and leave a review on your favorite platform. Remember, too, that blogs, episodes, and other information about the show are available online at storiesofsymmetry.com, on Facebook and Instagram at storiesofsymmetry, and on most major podcast apps. The next episode, What's in a Name, Part 2 will be out in two weeks, and in it, we'll be discussing not the names of people, but the name of God, if there even is one. Until then, have a great two weeks. Go with God, go in peace.